Amen. So let's start reading in verse 1. We're going to try to cover 33 and 34 today, but we're not going to read every single verse. And uh, I hopefully, who here read the chapters to prepare? Oh, okay, thank you, Scarlett and Miss Paula. The rest of you should be ashamed of yourselves. No, I know, and we have some first-time visitors. They are ashamed of y'all. Normally, a few people, Mr. Brother Harold, he would have raised his hand if he were here. Well, 33 verse 1, we'll read it, and then I'll have to just recap some stuff for you. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. 400 is the size of a militia in the book of Samuel. So you remember where we were. Jacob has um, exited. He's gone through his exodus out of slavery from Laban, crossed over the water into the promised land with basically the entire church, his wives and all their children and the promises of God. Right as he enters the promised land, he meets God. He wrestles with a man, turns out to be God, and he refuses to let go of God until God blesses him. And that's the faith that wrestles with God and uh, struggles and goes through trial, but holds fast to God. God does bless him, gives him a new name, and that's what trials do for us very often. We come out of them new. Um, But then Jacob asked God to tell him his name, and he says no, because God keeps that a mystery and teases and stirs the saints' affections and desires for the full revelation of God throughout the entire Old Testament with types and shadows and half-stories until finally he ultimately reveals himself in Jesus. So that today, when we wrestle with God, he blesses us and he gives us a new name. And when we ask him his name, he says Jesus. So um, we have a full and total revelation of who he is. But now Esau has to wake up the next morning. I mean, Jacob has to wake up the next morning And he has to face Esau. He's prayed that God would protect him. He's prayed the promises of God, that God would protect the women and the children and all his offspring according to the covenant that he made with Abraham. And now he's going to face Esau. He sent his evangelists or his messengers out in front of him with gifts of grace, hoping to placate Esau. And we'll see if it works. Esau was coming with 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He did that hoping that at least one group might live. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and her son Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. You can see that his favored is Rachel and her son Joseph, and that's a big part of the book of Genesis, that the blessing goes from the sons of Leah to the sons of Rachel Joseph uh, and Benjamin. And so you'll see that throughout the rest of the book. You'll see as the, as the book of Genesis progresses that we start to focus on Joseph. And um, this is setting that up. Verse 4, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So it worked. Esau's heart was melted by grace and he's no longer holding vengeance toward his brother and, and probably his, his brother's mother and what they did um, or what Esau thinks they did to him. Then verse 12, I'm going to skip down to verse 12 to get to our point for this chapter. Then Esau said, 
Let us journey on our way. Let us journey on our way. And I will go ahead of you. So he says, hey, we've reconciled. We're in the promised land together. Of course, you know the promises with Jacob and not with Esau. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated, the Bible says. And so Esau says, hey, let's join together. And let's unite our forces. Let's be allies together. And Jacob says, no, 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 you know, just take my gifts. You know, I don't want, I don't need anything extra. So Esau doubles down on it in verse 15. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. So let me leave some of my people with you. No, no, no. Jacob doesn't want that either. No, no, no. Let's stay separate. So he says it again in verse 16. So Esau returned that day. Well, no, finally Esau gets the hint in verse 16. So Esau returned that day. On his way to Seir, verse 17, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. So that's the main overview of chapter 33. They reconcile. They're in the promised land. Esau wants to join forces, but Jacob says, no, no, no. And they go their separate ways. And uh, can anyone tell us the, the major biblical theme that is being introduced to us here through narrative? What have we learned so far in the book of Genesis that would lead us to know why Jacob would behave this way? Why is Jacob not wanting to be in covenant with Esau and to join forces with Esau? Because he knows his brother below Sure, yes, but even deeper than that. Esau, the land is not Esau's, that's right. There is a division. You see, he understands there's a distinction between the people of Jacob and the people of Esau, right? Can you think of any prophecies early, early on in the book of Genesis that he might be familiar with? He has the first Toledoth. He has the tablets, um, most certainly. And he knows the first gospel prophecy, at least the one first spoken gospel prophecy. I will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. That's one of the promises of the gospel that God is going to make the people, his people and the people of the world distinct. He's going to draw a very clear distinction. And um, theologically, we call that an antithesis. All right, so you've got the thesis and you have the antithesis. When you blend the two together, what's that called? Synthesis or syncretism, yeah. But when you pull them apart, that's antithesis. Synthesis, antithesis. If they join together, that's synthesis, compromise, syncretism, right? When they are drawn apart and distinct, that is the antithesis. That's a major theme throughout the whole Bible. Huge theme. That's what I'm going to talk about a little bit tonight. Um, Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. Exodus 8, 22. Listen to to this. But on that day, this is God promising the judgment of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Egyptian gods. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That's where Israel lived. I will set it apart. What's it mean to be set apart? To make it holy, to consecrate it, to draw a clear distinction. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. What are some of the other plagues that were, uh, there was a distinction? Remember, there was daylight in one place and dark in the other. 
And then there's the gnats are here translated the flies, I think. Um, Throughout all the plagues, you see a distinction between the land of Goshen and the people of God and the Egyptians. And in verse 23 of Exodus 8, he says, Thus, as in through the plagues, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. Why does God judge the Egyptians but deliver the Israelites? The covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which were because Abraham was special, because he was devout. Yes, no, 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 absolutely not. Did he choose Israel because they had any special qualities? No. What does he say to Moses? I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's right. So Egypt is destroyed for their sins. Israel is redeemed out of slavery, made into a nation and given the promises of grace. And he shows that clear distinction. And Israel and Egypt both sinned, right? Israel had just as much sins. Why do you think they were in slavery? Because they had been in idolatry, right? So through the giving of grace to Israel and the giving of wrath, To the Egyptians, he shows a clear distinction between his people and not his people. The offspring of the woman, offspring of the serpent. To pick up on that older um, prophecy. The jars of clay and the vessels of wrath, yes. So it's unconditional grace, sovereign grace alone, given to Israel, and judgment and wrath given to Egypt, that's a clear distinction. And he does that to show that clear distinction, to show that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's what he told Moses at the burning bush he was going to show, right? He wants to show this sovereign election. He wants to show this unconditional grace, all right? Now, this is why um, 2 Corinthians 6.14, listen to what Paul says. This is for, um, for us. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. All right, what does it mean to be yoked? We need more participation because some of y'all didn't sleep enough last night, and myself included. Uh, what does it mean to be yoked? Tied together. Yeah. Joined together. Well, you know what a yoke is, maybe. Big giant made out of wood goes over two oxen. If you're unequally yoked, you got one oxen really small, maybe. And, and weak, another one very powerful. And if you're unequally yoked, the farmer's going to plow in circles, right? Or if one's going in one direction and the other's going the other direction, you can't bear fruit. That yoke is a symbol throughout the Bible of a covenant. You can't be unequally covenanted with an unbeliever because I will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I will show grace to the Israelites. I will show judgment to the Egyptians. That's why Jacob doesn't join forces with Esau. That's why he doesn't let him send some of his people over there. Jacob keeps his church pure of apostates and of unbelievers. That's what he's doing, essentially. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, we typically apply that in what situation? Relationships. We talk about marriage. That's right. You cannot enter into a marriage covenant or a betrothal or an engagement with an unbeliever if you're going to follow Jesus. And honestly, if you're going to be yoked to Jesus and they're not going to be yoked to Jesus, then you're going to go in two different directions. All it's going to lead is to strife and strife and strife. 
You wouldn't want to do that. You're going to be pulled in two different directions. Who wants that? Right? That's like that's a form of torture being put on the rack. Right? No one wants that. All right? But then Paul goes on to explain and he says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What partnership? That's an interesting word, isn't it? What do we use partnerships for? Business. Yeah, business. What's Dave Ramsey say? Anyone know that quote? A partnership is a, the one ship that doesn't float. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah, I think you've got to be very careful about entering into covenantal relationships with unbelievers. Right? I'm not saying that you can't enter into relationships with unbelievers on any level. We have retail relationships, right? We have consumer relationships. We have business relationships, etc. But when you enter into uh, certain types of partnerships with unbelievers... You need to be very careful. Why? They have different goals. They have different values. They have different passions. That's going to make that's going to put a strain on your partnership, right? They have a different law. He goes on, Paul says, "What fellowship has light with darkness? Fellowship koinonia in common with light with darkness. What accord? That's a Honda, but it's you know, there's discord, accord. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Inheritance. You don't have an, a shared inheritance. Right? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, who can finish it? Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know what that means. Then I will welcome you. This is a very important uh, lesson for the Christian. Um, we must draw clear distinctions and we must be distinct, Right? If, if churches and families are to increase, then we have to keep the distinction clear. Can't think like them. Can't live like them. Can't make covenants with them. Can't act like them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Right? This is why, just I'm going to rattle off some applications for you. This is generally why we don't take government money. We don't want to be in covenant with them. Right? And trust me, when they give money, it's a covenant. There's terms and conditions, blessings and cursings, and there's covenantal succession. Right? There's all of the aspects of covenant when the federal government gives you money. Right? <clears throat> this is why we don't marry unbelievers. This is why we shouldn't marry Roman Catholics. They have a completely alternate understanding of justification by grace through faith. It doesn't mean they, that they might not be saved, as in uh, you know, regenerated, because we're regenerated by grace, not by having our doctrine of justification figured out. Um, but when someone is holding to their covenant with an apostate church, we wouldn't, I don't believe we should marry them. Right? This is why um, we hold to the revealed truth of Scripture and we don't hold to narrative. Right? You all know what narrative is? Narrative is uh, repeated lies. If you, re- if you repeat a lie over and over again long enough, it becomes a narrative. Right? Now, in, in the, and you need to understand, the, in the postmodern world, in our world, they don't believe in absolute truth. They certainly don't believe in revealed truth, the Bible. 
They believe in what they would call narrative. It's a technical, technical term. I don't necessarily mean a story. You're familiar with being in education as long as you were. You're familiar with postmodern understandings of the truth. They don't believe in truth absolute or ultimate, especially in the Bible. They believe that each culture, each subgroup has narrative. That is repeated um, facts, right? Notice I'm putting quotes around facts. Repeated, quote, truths that are true for them that they repeat over an extended period of time and becomes narrative. That's what they believe. That's why you can see them on the news double down on things that you know that is absolutely false, but they continue to say it over and over and over again, and they really do believe it because they believe on one hand, they believe the narratives. They believe their culture's narratives, their religion's narratives. Every cult has a culture, their religion's narratives, and they reproduce those narratives and preach those narratives because they're faithful to their religion. We don't believe in the narratives. We believe in the truth. We don't live by narratives, which are preached by the prophets of the world. We live by truth. That's one of the ways we're distinct. And the truth, of course, is revealed in Scripture. We don't feed on the wisdom of worldlings. Give me some examples of people who are, have the wisdom of the world, but do not believe in special revelation and do not hold to the truth of the Bible. Jordan Peterson is a great example. We're not saying he's always wrong, and we love it when he owns the libs, whatever, you know. But he's not, he doesn't have biblical truth. He has worldly wisdom. I hate it when I see Christians online celebrating him. He's studying the Bible right now in a big series. He is studying the Bible. Have you, have you heard some of them? No, I have not. They're special. All right. <laughs> Who would be some other examples? All of the guys on the Daily Wire. All of the guys on the Daily Wire. Um, Andrew Clavin, Andrew Clavin is a Christian. He believes in special revelation, but he is what we would call, I would say, he's a, he's a Thomas Aquinas Christian. He holds to both uh, the truth of revealed scripture and the ability of human reason to learn things from nature. Um, so he's not exactly like a reformed Christian, um, though he's a great guy, I'm sure. Um, and um, who's, a, who's the uh, Italian guy? Joe Rogan? No, he's not on Daily Wire. Um, oh, no, 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 he's Jewish. I can't think of it right now, but there's an Italian guy. I, I you know, I, I think he's great. He, huh? No, he is Italian, but not him. Michael Knowles. Yeah. So Michael Knowles is a devout, devout Roman Catholic. And so it's always interesting to hear him because he'll always give you sort of what we call the, the classical or the uh, Western tradition as it, as it pertains to particular things. And so if you want to know what Aquinas or Aristotle uh, has to say about various issues, he believes that's his, that's his religion. He will also mention the Bible, but Roman Catholics don't hold to the Bible as ultimate truth. They hold to the Bible and Western tradition and philosophy and human reason together. Right? But we want, uh, as Reformed Christians, as we're Christians, we want to draw a distinct uh, line between all of those various other forms of knowledge. Right? We want to demonstrate the antithesis in all things. All right? Um, moving on, this is why uh, we tithe. Why do we tithe? Because it makes sense, right? No. Although it does make sense, but that's not why we believe it. We believe it because the Bible commands it, first and foremost. This is why we don't sue each other, right? Because the Bible says, right? This is why we run our own charity. 
We have our own benevolence fund and take care of our own people. We are not of the world, right? This is why we don't let the world write our textbooks for our kids, right? This is why it's very, very dangerous to send your kids to the University of Babylon. You know, they might make it out like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know. They might go into a fiery furnace, you know. Um, They might make it out. They might apostatize. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, sometimes you have to because we live in a land where Esau has been given dominion. And so if you want an engineering certificate, you've got to go to Esau's school and get an engineering certificate from his school because he has dominion of the land now, right? And that's judgment on us. But, um, but still, it's dangerous. You've got to be careful, right? This is why we can't bend to the LGBT plus plus worldview. It's a, it is a distinct worldview, This is why we can't uh, say that we're conservatives. Although we are conservative in a sense of the word, the conservative movement is not a special revelation movement. You understand? It's not quite there, right? Um, Like we said last week, they think the problem is the LGBT or they think the problem is the left when what we really believe is the problem is God, right? (laughs) Okay, now, I'm, I'm glad they're fighting. I'm glad they're playing defense for us. That's fine. But we're never going to move forward until we deal with God. Right? Which is another way of saying repent. Right? Um, so we could go on. This is why we don't wear football jerseys in worship. Um, this is why we don't salute the American flag in worship. Regulative principle of worship der- derived from the Bible, not from uh, marketing techniques or, you know, etc., much of what we do and the entire culture we're trying to create comes out of this belief that we must be distinct. We must draw a clear antithesis between us and the world. And that does bother a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians want to be accepted by the world. They don't want their friends to be embarrassed by their Christian behavior on Sunday morning for 45 minutes. They want to fit in, right? They want to be thought of as academic or intelligent or successful. And that's where the temptations come in. Right? What, um, just to throw it back to y'all for a little bit, what would be some temptations that would lead us into synthesis instead of drawing a hard, fast antithesis? While well, I find my place here. Comfort, ease. Well, it's definitely easier. You won't get persecuted if you just compromise with the world. That's right. Anything else? Yeah, you have any examples for us? Yeah, you might get a, a talking spot on CNN. Um, you know, if you're in a big city, you might get that professorship. You might get that tenure. Um, you know, you might. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or it can be temptation. It can be tempting. But imagine you are in a, a Esau's Academy, and you want a PhD. And you draw a clear antithesis. I believe the world was created in six days because the Bible says so. 
Oh, yes, amen. <laughs> they won't say amen, though. They will say, you're a rube, you're a hayseed, you're a hick, uh, you are not an intellectual, and it's very likely that you get rejected from your PhD board. And you know what else? I also believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and deposited on the shores of Nineveh, right? As a prophet, I believe that Noah had an ark. Why do we believe these things? Because the Bible says so. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? Anything other than that, you go down a path of compromise and eventually apostasism, especially of your children, right? I, sexual temptation, I think, is big for a lot of people. I think a lot of people synthesize because of sexual temptation. Greed, I think, is big. Pride is huge, right? The desire to be noteworthy and to have notoriety. Fear is another reason. What does God say? Don't fear the man who can kill your body. It would be smarter and wiser for you to fear God who can kill your body and then put your soul in hell. So if you're thinking about compromising because of persecution, don't do that. God's way more scarier than your persecutor, right? And God has way more money than the, the paycheck you think you're going to get for this, right, etc. So, <clears throat> all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk about the same thing, but we're going to go one step under, okay? One step under, and we'll see if, you, if we can get this, okay? This is, not a, I, this is not a rehearsed speech, by the way. I'm vulnerable in front of you, okay? I'm, I'm a real person. One step under. Okay, but listen. This begins, this synthesis, which eventually turns into being moderate, being balanced, which eventually slides into compromise, which eventually slides into apostasy. I have a little quote from you right here, and I got this from Pastor Scott's Facebook wall. Um, and I, I think someone else might have wrote it, or you might have wrote it. Um, So among various Christian ministries, those concerned with intellectual pursuits, which are fine, those are good, but they face the temptation to appear intellectually sophisticated Mm. in the eyes of the world, to be accredited, to be certified, to be stamped. You know what it means to be accredited? What's the word accredited come from? Comes from credo. It means you hold to the same creed. And the word credo comes from, is, is the English word belief, believe. Creed, in, that's right, creed. Incredulous means you can't believe it. Right? Creed, to be accredited means they say, you believe our practices and our theology, we approve of you. Why would we want to be accredited from University of Babylon, Esau's Academy, Right? Unequally yoked, you, you, you know, you. Why would we want that? We don't want that. Antithesis, antithesis. The people that struggle with the, what I'm saying here, and there's always Christians that struggle with this, they have a Christian heritage of synthesis, right? If the temptation is not resisted, then a progression is inevitable from faithful conservatism, or toe in the line, to moderation and balance, those sound positive, right? <laughs> from moderation to liberalism and from liberalism to unbelief. That's what happens. You see, because sin is not ever content. Once it gets you to be, you know, I'll take a middle position. You think it's sin is going to be satisfied at that point? 
No, it's going to constantly pull and pull and pull. And of course, it's going to pull you in the direction of all of society, which is going really fast in one particular direction. You're going to be pulled. This is why it's very important to consciously, self-consciously, hold to an antithesis and work for it and fight for it in in your family and in your church. So with that being said, this is what I think is underneath it as far as like churches go and ideologies, it begins with this, thinking that we can come to truth, right, apart from the Bible. That's where I think it begins. That's the underlying uh, temptation. When you swallow that, eventually you or your family or your denomination will eventually be liberal, it will go all the way to wherever the world is at the time, which these days is liberal, right? So let me try to say this one more time and see if we can understand it. If you're holding onto the Bible, we have truth and we know something is true because the Bible says it, period. When we make discoveries, innovations, if they are not founded on the Bible and within the guardrails of the Bible, then they are false, Okay? Um, if, if whatever we believe or hold to or discover, if it is not in accord with Scripture, on the foundation of Scripture and within the guardrails of Scripture, then it is a lie. Okay? So, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Absolutely it does. If you understand what the Bible teaches about God and the nature of God, then you understand that the people who are right about 2 plus 2 equals 4 are right because they know a little bit of something about God. Right? When you throw out God, you throw out absolute truth, you might start to believe things like 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's narrative. It's culturally based. I'm glad our engineers don't go with that yet. Right? But our artists do because it's safe when you do it as an artist. Right? So... it begins by no longer believing that the Bible applies to all of life. That the Bible is no longer authoritative for all of life. That's how this starts. So in the seminaries, in the halls of power, the ideology starts with the Bible is for some of life, but you can go to nature with your not-so-fallen mind accompanied by a lot of other humans with not-so-fallen minds, and you can discover, and you can innovate, and you can explore, and you can design, let's say, a just society with the Bible over here. Right? That, when that starts, it's eventually a slide into synthesis and apostasy. All right? Um, questions? Do you all understand what I'm saying? I'm going to give you some examples here in a second. But do you understand? All right? Hmm. Um, so we had, uh, we had riots a couple years back, the uh, BLM riots. And uh, what was their beef? What was the beef? Sure, that was the spark that ignited it. But underlying the beef is our society is not just, right? Okay, just means that our society does not accord to a particular set of laws, right? Where are their laws from? BLM, okay, as an example, Antifa, okay? So they're rioting, 
tear down, uh, deconstruct, deconstruct, you know, break the systems. The systems are broken. But what is fixed? What is the standard of fixed? Where did they come up with that? This is not just. Yes, I know our kids are on to this, but (laughs) the system is unjust. That means you all know justice means you're in accord with the law. You're on the right side of the law. That our system is unjust. They mean what they mean is our system is not following a law. What law? Is it God's law? Is it Bible law? Is it no law? No, it's a law. You just may not be able to put your finger on it. It's a law. It's called social justice law, for lack of another word. It's a uh, neo-Marxist law. It's a law, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, you see, they are, they are saying we have a vision for a just society. And it is a just society based on laws, not from the Bible, but from our, our outside of the Bible, philosophies that we came up with with our mind and reading people of the past. Okay? Now, what if there's a Christian in a Christian denomination or a church that doesn't believe God's laws in the Bible apply to how to build a just society and that they only apply to how an individual can be saved and escape from planet Earth? What will they, how will they respond to a person? Society's not just. Uh, where will they go? What authority do they have to even counter? What will they do? Other tradition. They will go with what they were taught in their schools. What they grew up by default and what they watch on television, which will be the same. False which will narrative. be the same. Do what? False narrative. They will believe narrative. They will begin slowly to absorb a alternate law. And wherever you have an alternate law, you have an alternate God. God because God is the lawgiver. See, I'm, I'm trying to show you that when you don't think the Bible is authoritative over any area of life, the world will then deposit in your mind a different law from a different God, a different basis to live by. A different what? With a different covenant. With a different covenant, exactly. Mm-hmm. With different blessings and cursings and terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. And now you will be a double-minded man. Now in that area, you will be holding synthesis. It could be in business. A Christian who um, reads business books constantly by non-believers, okay, is a Christian who is sliding toward the world, right? Because they aren't holding fast the antithesis. Now, does Simon Sinek or or who are some other people, uh, you know, y'all don't, good, I'm glad y'all don't know. Uh, Who's the really, the motivational coach who's always Tony Robbins, Right? With these guys, are they wrong all the time? No. Can you read them and get some good stuff here and there? But only when they are on the top of the Bible and within the guardrails of the Bible, and I hope I don't know if y'all know your Bibles well enough to do this in the realm of business. I hope we have businessmen who can one day do this. But you've got to know your Bibles really well if you, and everything the Bible has to say about business and finance and money and ethics. If you're going to read a worldly businessman and be able to tell the difference you got to really know your stuff. And most Christians don't have a clue. They're just like, that seems to work. Pragmatism, mm-hmm. right? They're already absorbing laws from other gods. They're sliding. If you, if you bust open a parenting book 
from a worldling with filled with worldly wisdom synthesis. You see what I'm saying? That's the start of entire denominations um, uh, sliding into worldly worldliness. Right? Every seminary that I know of, except maybe like five, do you know what they require their professors to have? Do what? Bow ties? Yeah. <laughs> they require PhDs or master's degrees, right? Seminaries, I'm talking about. The colleges that train pastors. But do you know that very often they require them to be accredited from worldly institutions? Go to any seminary's page and look at the professors and see where their degrees come from. Do you see what's happening? Why do you think the church is constantly sliding and sliding and sliding? Because we refuse for academic prowess or for uh, notoriety in the eyes of the world. We refuse to toe the line. We refuse to show the antithesis. No, Esau, you can't be on the faculty. No, Esau, you can't write the textbooks. No. And no, Esau, I don't want your accreditation. We have to maintain this antithesis. Now, a little history. Presbyterians, um, <clears throat> Presbyterians, for example, in the 1900s were heavily influenced by a, a movement called pietism. All right? Now, the word piety is a good word, and it's good to, be, to have piety. But as an ism, pietism held that the Bible and Christianity is for inside here, for spiritual matters, for the church, for liturgy and worship and things like that, but by and large was not for society at large. All right? There's the kingdom of God that's just spiritual. It's in here, family a little bit, Sunday morning worship for sure, and then there's another kingdom out there. And the two run parallel forever, okay? So that's two kingdom. This is the Bible's area. This area over here, we get from the world. We get worldly wisdom, all right? That pietism, that pietistic idea influenced Presbyterianism heavily, right? Um, Just as, as an example, Banner of Truth. Who's ever heard of Banner of Truth? Great publishing house. They pub- what do they publish? They publish Puritan sermons and Puritan books. Apparently, though, they've stopped publishing as much. You know, one of the reasons I heard is they said we've kind of just run out of Puritan books and, and sermons to publish. We've published them all. But find one Puritan sermon or book on politics produced by Banner Truth Trust. You're not going to find it. Oh, there's mountains of Puritan sermons right in the face of kings, right at the queen, right? About the political order, about how the Bible applies to social justice and economic theory. But pietism removes that and says the Bible is about the spiritual, the inner. Now you see what happens. You see the problem. So in the early 19th century, a lot of Presbyterians began to catch on to what's called the social gospel. Right? They began to catch on to other alternate things, and they became liberal and socialistic. And they lost the entire denomination that we call the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, to this slide. 
They lost, they lost uh, Princeton Seminary to it. And Westminster Theological Seminary is on its way. And I'm saying that it's because they started with the sum of the Bible for sum of life. When you do that, you begin the slide. It has to be all the Bible for all of life. That's my, that's my thesis. All right? Um, <clears throat> the uh, Lutheranism, same thing. Lutheranism is very pietistic, very pietistic. And so when Hitler emerged and he began to speak about social justice and systemic um, uh, imbalances caused by various groups and he was offering his theory of economic justice and social justice. What did the church by and large do? The Lutheran church by and large was like, yeah, I think he might be right. They didn't have an alternate social justice theory. They didn't have anything to say to it. Why do you think so many churches went, quote, woke? It's the same thing. It's happening. Over and over again. Um, however, just over the border in Germany, in um, the Netherlands, there was a college that had been started by a man by the name of Abraham Kuyper. And, and, you, and I can send you some links on this, but some, many historians say that the man that Hitler feared more than anyone was a dead man, a man that had already been dead, and his name was Abraham Kuyper. Because Abraham Kuyper believed that there was not one square inch of this world that was, was not under the sovereignty of God. And he believed all of the Bible should be applied to all of life. And Hitler knew that those people with that worldview was actually a threat. That's what an antithesis was. Right? He was able to say our movement is a Christian movement. And the, and the churches were like, ah. See, because they were all about the inside and about the spiritual. I'm not saying that's not important. That's Super important. If you don't have the insides, you certainly don't have the outsides. But you can't stop with just the insides. All of the Bible for all of life. That's essential to holding our line with the antithesis. Um, The Baptists have uh, not um, been much better. They They have mostly been dominated by what's called dispensational theology that breaks the Bible up into seven dispensations generally. And um, if we were to summarize it, um, some of the Bible is for us and for us today, but not all of it. So um, you could have extreme dispensationalists, which, which would say things like the Sermon on the Mount is not for us. The Ten Commandments are not for us. Um, the Lord's Prayer, we shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer. That was before Pentecost. That would be like the extreme kind. The less extreme are inconsistent with that, and they will apply some things to us, but not others. You see, but when you believe the Old Testament is for an old dispensation, what have you just lost? Your entire guidebook for how to live your life. You've lost a period of history where God created a nation and built a just society and showed them how to have economic freedom and how to resist tyranny and what sort of government they should have, an elected representative constitutional monarchical government. He showed them all of these things. Our founders had the Old Testament, and they went to it, and they modeled off of it. And, the, and before our founders, even more. Our founders compromised, but that's another story for another day. A little compromise. But if you don't have the Old Testament, you don't have the civil laws in the Old Testament. So you can't, you can't apply them. You don't have anything to work with. So what do you go to? Worldly wisdom. You have to. And the slide happens. And what happened to the Southern Baptist Convention? They were preaching abortion in the 70s. I don't know if any of y'all remember that. That's surprising, isn't it? Look, look at who was arguing the case for Roe v. Wade. Look at all the different judges. 
The Baptists had a huge part to play in that. There were many Southern Baptists who were promoting abortion in those days. But they had what was called the conservative resurgence, right? Ronald Reagan. I don't know if some of y'all don't know about this too much. David, you remember this, huh? Ronald Reagan, the, the conservative right. Uh, George W. Bush was uh, you know, kind of on the tail end of that, and Pat Buchanan. You say, well, are they, uh, are they applying all the Bible to all of life? Now we have a Christian political theory? Yeah. No. They didn't go far enough. They didn't. And what has happened? Petered out. Gone. If it ever even was a thing. All right. So that's... that's uh, I know that some of y'all are just bored to death by this concept. But um, we have to hold fast in Christ church the belief, all of the Bible for all of life. If you are a salesman, you need to be figuring out what the Bible has to say about sales. I, I, I'm a generalist. Pastor Scott is a generalist. We, can't, we cannot figure all this stuff out. We can't uncover all these things for you. If, if you are a contractor, if you're a teacher, if you're in education, uh, if you're in science or engineering or investing, I'm looking around the room, um, whatever you're in, you need to be, what does the Bible say about this? So that you can build whatever it is you're doing on the Bible and stay within the guardrails of the Bible. Then you'll have truth. Then you'll have innovation. Then you'll have discovery. That's how all the great discoveries, all the innovations of the West that brought about modernity and freedom, that it all came from that worldview. All of the Bible for all of life. Now let's build on top of that and discover and innovate within the guardrails and on top of the foundation of it. And anything not, we cast it away. Antithesis. All right. Any questions before we wrap up? On a scale of one to ten, how clear am I? Is that seven and a half? Seven and a half? All right. A, a solid D plus. I'm, you know, I'm good with that. Nine. You're you're tracking. All right. I really want us to get this. Um, so the, when your child has attention problems in school, what are you going to do? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. You always get to the punchline, don't you? <laughs> are you going to go to your local non-Christian shrink for guidance? No. No. Gosh, no. That's synthesis. That's not antithesis. All right. When you're preparing for your child and the education you want them to raise, are you going to be like, well, you know, you know, it is what it is, you know, and not really think about it, and you just go off to the, to the postmodern humanist atheistic university where they can have their uh, faith deconstructed? No. no, you're not going to do that. You have to hold the antithesis fast, you know. And if they do have to go because they have to bend the knee to the nursing gods or whatever, um, you need to be very careful about that. You need to train them up. Make sure that they have the antidote before they go over there and drink all the poison. All right. I know. Any other questions? Any other ideas? All right. Y'all have a great evening. Eight o'clock.